The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1-2. through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, I don't know about you all, I can't think of a better way to start a Sunday in 2020 than with a fire alarm going off all around the building. Uh, those of you who came late today, this was the day to do it. Uh, it was loud in here, but uh, I'm glad to be able to be still uh, before the Lord uh, with you this morning. Uh, we, are, um, we are now you know, at the Sunday after Labor Day, and the Sunday after Labor Day is always the Sunday that we sort of kick off the ministry year with a new series, and uh, this series is going to be Second Timothy. Uh, we're going to be going through, uh, I think, about six messages before we do our three-part series on politics, uh, flanking election week. Aren't you looking forward to that? Um, thinking about maybe bringing in guest preachers for all three of those Sundays, but um, in any event, Second uh, Timothy is about life together. It's about the local church. It's about the centrality of the body and the bride of Christ uh, in the life of the believer. And uh, before we get into the text, what I'd like to do is uh, invite us to another part of the liturgy that we're going to invite in to our rhythm for uh, the next weeks. And it's a a prayer uh, that was penned by John Stott, who is an Anglican uh, minister that so many of us uh, esteem so highly. And uh, this just seems to fit so perfectly as a congregational prayer before a sermon. So will you join me uh, in this as we look to the, the screen together? Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit be our teacher, and your greater glory be our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Well, I'd like to uh, start with a, uh, uh, an anecdote that I actually first heard from Micah Edmondson last week as uh, Patty, my wife, and I went over to Uh, the Music Row congregation to worship with them. I had the Sunday off, and uh, and Micah shared uh, an anecdote about the old uh, Chicago preacher Dwight L. Moody, and uh, he was paying a pastoral visit to uh, one of the Chicago elites, a very successful gentleman, also a Christian, uh, in metropolitan Chicago. And in their conversation, the subject of the local church came up. And the man said to uh, Dwight Moody, I believe I can be just as good a Christian outside of the church as I can inside the church. And so what Moody did, it was a a cold day. They had a fire going and uh, the fire was burning with coals. And what Moody did was he removed a single coal from that blazing fire and he put it all by itself on the hearth And the two men sat there and watched quietly as that one coal died out. 
And the man looked at Dwight Moody and said, I see. I see what you mean. You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you. And the hand cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Let there be no separation or no division in the body of Christ. Hebrews, in a climate of persecution, said this to the people of God, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. And all the more, even as you see the day of Jesus Christ approaching. And then one of Nathan Tasker's favorites that he likes to put in front of us every now and then is from Ephesians, where it says that the people of God are to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There's this exchange of words that, that happens between the people of God as they gather. It's not lost on me that we had over 100 people join our church this morning. In the middle of a global pandemic, where about 60 to 65% of the church is still not here. Much like the Apostle Paul, so many people are out there not here with us longing to be back together with the body of Christ. I get, I get emails, I get texts, especially from people who've got uh, high-risk uh, situations to contend with, and they need to just safely keep themselves away from social gatherings of any kind, including church, until a solution is found to the climate that we're in right now. And these men and women are saying repeatedly, oh, thank you for church at home, but oh my goodness, I sure miss the people of God. We sure miss the people of God. We miss the sound of other people's voices singing. We miss the sound and noises of children. Uh, we miss the messiness of community. We miss all of it and we can't wait to be back. Paul has this same heart when he writes to Timothy, and we'll unpack this a little bit more next week, where he talks about how he longs to be with Timothy, but he can't. See, because Paul is in prison, and he's writing a mentor's letter as he passes the baton because he's waiting his death. He's awaiting his death. He's awaiting for, for the Roman uh, emperor to, to declare it's time to execute Paul for preaching the gospel. And so this is sort of his last will and testament to the young Timothy. And he's like this, this coal that's separated, an ember all by itself, just trying to, to, to keep stirring up the heat through relationship. And his first words are just that, words. Words have power. And Paul recognizes that. The whole universe exists because of words. In the beginning, God said, and then there was. He said, let there be, and there was. And he did it for six straight days, and you get the heavens and the earth and everything in them because of words. Words are powerful. Words have power to injure. Whoever made up the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me, had either never been bullied or insulted or criticized or was in deep denial. We all know this, don't we? Many of us are still dealing with the wounds of words spoken over us when we were five years old. 
Words are powerful. They also have great power to heal. You know, we, we quoted Bonhoeffer a couple of weeks ago where he said that, that, that Christ in my heart is weaker than Christ in the word of my brother's and sisters, we need the encouragement of one another. You know, Moses needs Aaron and her to, to hold his hands up and to keep him encouraged. And when the scriptures say encourage one another, it's chiefly with words. We call this passing the peace of Christ. Cannot wait to get the tables back up here. Gather around these tables and, and for those solid eight minutes together during communion to, 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 to pass the peace of Christ, to share the words of Christ with one another as a congregation. I so deeply miss that. Can't wait to get back to that practice when it's safe to do so. But in the meantime, here we have Paul, a mentor. And he's starting off with words, words like promise of life in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, there's just this, this gushing sense of affirmation and desire to encourage, to put courage into this young man. But what I want to do this morning is to focus on the three big words, the big three words that Paul uses. One by one, grace, which God gives for our guilt, mercy, which God gives for our pain, and peace, which God gives for our loneliness and isolation. So let's start with grace. What a great word. What a powerful and healing word, especially in a world that says you have to measure up. You have to put your best foot forward. If you don't want to get canceled, you better not mess up. But in church, did you hear it in the membership vows? Here's the first standard of entry. The recognition, not that God helps those who help themselves, but that God helps those who can't help themselves. Not that God puts the bar so high, but, 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 but God actually lets the bar be so low for entry into the body of Christ. Do you remember the first membership vow that, 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 that these beloved souls made this morning in front of us? Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, except through his sovereign mercy? Do you? I do. We'll sing it later on at the end of the service. All the fitness that Jesus requires is to feel your need of him. And then we get to the second vow. <laughs> Do you acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? Who's freely offered himself to us in the gospel. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace is packed in the very first word of this letter. The whole story of grace is in the very first word of this letter. The first word of this letter is Paul. Paul an apostle, which is a miraculous statement by itself. You know, Paul gave a little bit of autobiographical information on himself in his first letter to Timothy, where he says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And he goes on to say, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was a violent man, I was, a, I was an aggressor, I was a bully. Toward who? Christians, followers of Jesus. I was a man on a mission. Why would God save me? Because of grace, 
So that, in Paul's words, in me, the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. In other words, if God is willing to accept me, anyone can get in on this. All you have to do is acknowledge that God helps those who can't help themselves, me being one of them. See, we we don't come into the family of God by putting our best foot forward. We come into the family of God by putting our worst foot forward. You know, those very things that tempt us to want to run away from ourselves are the things that cause Christ to run toward us. Our sin and our sorrows. Is Paul a special case? Absolutely not. This is, what's your favorite thing about the Bible? My favorite thing about, uh, about the Bible is all of the really, really bad people who receive welcome and belonging in the family of God because it tells me there's hope for people like me. Abraham treated his wife terribly, put her at terrible risk to protect his own hide. Abraham, the father of faith. Jacob, a habitual liar, becomes the father of Israel. David, an adulterer, a murderer, an abuser of power, becomes the author of half of the Psalms and the person that the scriptures refer to as a man after God's own heart. And he's given the distinct honor of Jesus calling himself not only the son of God, but also the son of David. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sins. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Rahab, the sex worker, makes it into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Put your worst foot forward. There's hope for you. This gives us permission to be kind to ourselves. To be kind to ourselves. You know there's one thing that you and I contribute to our salvation. Wait a minute, I thought we couldn't contribute anything. No, we can and we do. Jonathan Edwards said it. The one thing that you and I contribute to our own salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Those things that disgust us most about ourselves. Those things, again, that that make us want to run away from ourselves. Our OCD, our addiction, the way we sabotage relationships with our bad temper, our self-pity, our codependency, our fill-in-the-blank. The way we sabotage things, the way, you know, as the artist Pink said, we are a hazard to ourselves. The things that make us want to run away from us are the things that make Jesus want to run toward us. While we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. What do you struggle with most about yourself? You know, a few weeks ago, I was down on myself. I was confiding in my wife not long ago that this sometimes happens. I get into this kind of self-loathing thing sometimes, and, and, and often it's for things that I did or said 30 years ago, 17 years ago, the memory comes back and I just think, oh, what a fool I was. What a jerk I was. Why did I, how did I do that? And, and, and every now and then, I'll, those memories will come back of things I regret saying or doing. 
And this happened to me a few weeks ago. And I'll start saying words under my breath without even realizing it. Idiot. Loser. You stink. And the last time that happened, I'm a Presbyterian who believes in the Holy Spirit. We do exist. And... I believe the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart as I'm mumbling those words under my breath toward myself, you idiot, you loser, you stink. And what the Holy Spirit whispered to me was this. That's Abba's child you're talking about. Don't talk about Abba's child that way. You know, Groucho Marx said, I would never want to be a member of a club that would be willing to have me as a member. Andrew Peterson wrote a beautiful song, which happens to be my favorite song right now, in answer to Groucho Marx's sentiment, and it's called Be Kind to Yourself. Here are some of the lyrics. I know it's hard to hear when that anger in your spirit is pointed like an arrow at your chest, when the voices in your mind are anything but kind, And you can't believe your father knows best. I love you just the way that you are. I love the way he's shaping your heart. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. How does it end when the way that you're in is just you against you against you? You got to learn to love, learn to love, learn to love your enemy too. You see what he did there? Sometimes when we get into the quiet, we realize we're our own worst enemy. That's actually what compels the OCD and the codependency and the raging and all of these things that we, we, we wish weren't real about us and the way that we respond to the world, world around us. Typically it traces back to the fact that We're very, very hard on ourselves. Remember, that's Abba's child you have such a hard time with. And this also liberates us to be kind to each other. The church is a place where we don't cancel each other. The church is a place where you don't just get a second chance or a third chance. The church is the place of 70 times 7, which was an idiom for infinite number of failures. That's how long the leash is that God gives to his people. And that's how long the leash is that he wants us to give to one another. You cannot outsend the grace of God and and you shouldn't be able to outsend the grace of the church either. The church ought to be the safest place on earth to be a failure, to be a screw-up. God issues... Sexual sin, deceit, codependency, rage, addiction, blasphemy. There's a name that God has given you here. My beloved child. What Paul calls Timothy is the same thing that God called Paul when Paul was at his worst. Henry Nouwen puts it this way. He he describes the dynamic of what what a true grace-centered church is going to be like. It's being with people who are so obviously broken, so obviously handicapped, 
And in that place, discover real joy and peace, which makes the word of God come alive. Nothing like real applied grace to demonstrate to us how vibrant and alive the word of God is. Grace, that's the first word. I'm going to give most, most of my time to that word this morning. The second word is mercy, which comes right on the heels of grace and is, is a very close cousin to grace. Mercy. The world puts a label on people who miss the mark. We see this in uh, the 18th chapter of Luke in the famous parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee, it says, he's a religious professional, he's clergy like I am. And, and, and it says that he prays, not to God, he says he prays to himself. To himself. He's like giving himself a pep talk through the vehicle of prayer. And it goes like this. Thank you that I'm not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors, sinners. He's labeling people. Categorizing people. Caricaturing people reducing people to the very worst attributes about them and then canceling them so as to feel superior, morally and otherwise. But part of being the church is that we stop labeling. Instead of imposing negative verdicts on people, we are about the business with each other of reversing and undoing and dismantling negative verdicts. To be saying to one another, because we have to hear this, because the, the word of Christ on my heart is weaker than the word of Christ on my brother's and my sister's tongue. We have to keep reminding each other that contempt and shame and condemnation are liars. They're liars. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Nothing in all creation even the very worst things about us, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's mercy. He does not treat us as our sins deserve because his compassion, his mercy, triumphs over judgment. Now this is important for the young Timothy because Timothy is known to be a timid man who demonstrates signs of insecurity. And so Paul is constantly building him up. He says, Timothy, I know you're really young as a pastor, but you got this. Here's the baton, buddy. Don't let anybody despise you for your youth. The Lord has called you. That's your credential. The Lord has called you. The Lord has equipped you. The Lord has mentored you. You are capable, young man, of leading people twice your age who need what you have. Don't let them despise you for your youth. Oh, and I know you're sick to your stomach all the time. Take some wine for your stomach and keep going. Keep doing the work of the gospel. Let the Lord be your strength. Timothy, very likely he had some dad issues. You know, Paul mentions that Timothy had learned the faith from his mother and from his grandmother, from the women in his life. Paul makes no mention of Timothy's father having that kind of mentoring role. Maybe that's why Paul steps in so strong and says, Timothy, my son, 
You are like a son to me. Maybe it's because Paul was given to Timothy by God to reverse the negative verdicts that he carried around from a wounded dad story. Timothy was also biracial in a very prejudiced climate where you were judged by the color of your skin and not by the content of your character. His mother was Jewish, his father was Greek. His chief credential, again, is that he's called by the will of God. It's as if Paul is saying throughout these letters to Timothy, if you could only see yourself through my eyes, if you could only see yourself through Jesus' eyes, you would be amazed. You know, at weddings, I'll always do this as part of the homily. You know, the, the bride and the groom, they'll, they'll be right in front of me and, you know, they, they, they will have spent the whole day getting as beautiful as they could, could become, right? And I'll look at them and I'll say, look at him, look at her, get lots of pictures because this is as good as it gets. But that's really just a setup because that's actually not true at all when you're marrying a Christian man to a Christian woman. And then later on in the homily, I'll, I'll always pull in two specific verses that speak to the trajectory that Christians are on. One is Philippians 1.6. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work, the God who began a good work in you, will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. You're, you're a work in process. You're amazing right now, but where you're going, Unbelievable. No eye has seen kind of stuff. And then the other verse I bring in, the trajectory verse, is Ephesians 2.10, which says that, that Christians are God's workmanship, or literally, literally from the Greek, his poetry. He's in the process of, of, of creating glorious art out of each and every one of his people. And, and, and the, the point here is that the person that's in front of you or sitting next to you is, even if you've seen them at their best, you haven't seen them at their best yet. They're amazing. And, and, and a lot of the time, our, our, our perception of each other is a lot more mundane than that. Maybe even we even get irritated with each other and, and we want to become the coal that removes itself from the fire. <laughs> Those people. They sing off key, they show up late, they're irritating. I can do this on my own. When we do this, we are missing out on, on what we could call poetry in motion, of, of, of a work that God is doing when we disassociate ourselves from the people of God and pretend foolishly and so pridefully that we have a better idea than God did. I can do this on my own. I got this. Me and Jesus. Problem is, Jesus gets really upset when people reject his wife and turn away from his wife. He gets bothered by that. It's a package deal. But the point here is, we, we, we need eyes of faith to see the glory of what's in front of us when we're presented with another person, especially another person in Christ, even when they're at their worst. So, so to illustrate, our daughter, our oldest daughter, went to elementary school with a a young boy named Jason. And over time, we, Patty, my wife and I, started to feel sorry for him. 
is Jason was absent a lot. He was absent more than any of the other kids. And we just assumed, golly, he must, you know, he must just get sick a lot. He must, his immune system must be weak or something. And over time, we found out the real reason why he was absent, and I'll, I'll invite them to put the slide up for why. He was hanging out with Kobe Bryant, working on his basketball skills in Los Angeles. And uh, if you fast forward to 2020, we see Jason today, dunking over LeBron James, no less. The person right next to you you may be thinking, oh, what a sickly creature that is. What a sickly bunch. We're missing it. If we have that posture toward any child of God, we, we are missing something that God is up to. We're not seeing with clear eyes. Poetry. Poetry. I think part of the glory of heaven will be this. We will, we will get to heaven and we'll run into each other and we'll be like, oh, what a, what a surprise, Rachel. Oh my goodness, I mean, I, I thought you were great back then, but look at you, oh my goodness. And, and Rebecca's gonna look at me and Cam, Campbell's gonna look at me and say, oh, Scott, I, I didn't know you could grow hair. I didn't, I, I didn't know you could be good looking. You know, we're, we're, we're going to run into each other and, and we're going we're gonna to be presented with the best completed version of ourselves and, and, and we're going to say, ha, huh, I knew you win. I knew you win. Remember when we were back in elementary school together and you were gone all the time? Remember when we were back in church all, to, you know, all the time and we, you know, we were back in church together and, and we kind of annoyed each other. You know, you thought I was too grumpy and... I was irritated with you because you sung off key and um, wow, but look at us now. And, and, and we'll also look at each other and think that the fact that we stayed in community together, looking back, we see now how much that helped us both get to where we are now. Mercy. Then finally, peace, which, which has to do with the healing of loneliness. Timothy, my beloved child, who did not have a father who raised you in the Lord. Timothy, the biracial young man in a racially prejudiced climate. Son of a Jewish mother and a Greek father. This is loaded, you guys. These remarks are loaded because Paul was a recovered racist. Paul made a career out of persecuting Greeks, looking down on Greeks, praying things like, thank you, my God, that I'm not a woman, I'm not a slave, and I'm not a Greek. That's what they taught him in the rabbi schools. And yet now, the man who was once Saul of Tarsus is called not only to be an apostle, but to specifically be the apostle to the Greek world. And so here you've got Timothy, in his own DNA, in his own bloodstream, Paul's calling in the flesh, a Jew reaching out and becoming one with Gentiles. How about that? Peace. The God who 
tore down dividing walls between holiness and sinfulness, between heaven and earth, between himself and us, now also tears down those dividing walls, even between Jew and Greek. Timothy is like a fulfillment of Paul's ministry. No wonder Paul was so invested in Timothy. You know, when people come to church, this is supposed to be the one place in the world where people stop othering each other. Or as Brandy Kellett likes to say, where, where, we, where we expand our us for our broadening and deepening appreciation for how wildly and radically inclusive the kingdom and family of God is. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, rich and poor, male and female, Jew and Gentile, and so on. Dividing walls torn down. Or as Don Carson says, a natural, a band of natural enemies who couldn't get along outside of Christ, who now love one another for Jesus' sake. How is this possible? It's because what we do share in our differences, what we do share is so much greater and so much more enduring than the things we don't share with each other. One of those things is our dignity. That's a starting point. Whether you're Christian or non-Christian, if you're a human being, you, you are a person of great dignity, of great worth, of great value as a starting point because you're created in the image of God. But then Christians, on another level, we come to understand that the thing we have in common as well is our need. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. And Joseph Damien, I'll close with this. Joseph Damien was a 19th century missionary to a leper colony. And one of the things that he would do is that he would teach to uh, the members of that leper colony out of the Bible uh, every morning. And you know, those of you who know what leprosy is, it's, it's, it's a skin disease where, where, you, you can't, where your nerve endings don't work anymore and you can't, you can't feel things. Like you can get cut, uh, you can step on a nail and not even feel it. And... So Joseph Damien was preparing uh, to, uh, to teach one particular morning and he was pouring some piping hot water, some boiling water in a cup to make some tea. And, and he missed the cup and some of that boiling water fell on his foot and he noticed it fell on his foot, but he also noticed that it didn't feel anything. And then he got a little bit of fear and he, so he took some more boiling water and, and poured it on his foot didn't feel anything. He knew exactly what that meant. That his calling to minister to a leper colony had, had now you know, caused him to contract leprosy. And every morning up to that point, he would, he would, he would start his Bible teaching addressing uh, the folks in the leper colony with the words, my fellow believers. But from this morning forward, he began with a different address my fellow lepers. My fellow lepers. Isn't that tragic and beautiful all at the same time? You know, Steve Brown says, and I think, I think he got this from Martin Luther. I, I have to fact check me on that. Uh, that we are all beggars. This is what a Christian is. A Christian is a beggar who's received bread 
and, and now embraces the opportunity to share with other beggars, help them find where the bread is too. The last thing we share in, in addition to dignity and need is, is a shared future. The most hopeful word I think in this passage is the word promise. Because what a promise does is it, is it points to what's yet to come. The caterpillar is going to become the butterfly. The acorn is going to sprout into to the oak tree. You know, what we are becoming, we have not seen yet. Eventually, we're going to dunk on LeBron James and then some, you guys. And when Jesus comes, we'll look at each other and we'll say, wow, I knew you when. Would you look at you? Just take a look at yourself. And we'll look at each other and we'll say we helped each other along. And another thing that helped us along was this. This is the, this is the meal we're instructed in this way. To do this in remembrance of Christ. To do this in remembrance of his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And continue to do it until he comes. You hear the promise there? And when he comes, all things are made new, including us. And so in that hope, I want to invite us to stand together and we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together before we receive the body and the blood and go out singing. Daughters and sons of God, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.